Thank you very much, Sandy and Martin and Rabbi Haberman. Uh, it's an honor and a great pleasure to be here and to be addressing uh, this really fundamental topic. Um, before I go any further, let me just make sure I'm using this mic. Can people hear me? Uh, is the mic on? Yeah? Okay, thank you. One of the interesting and, to me, disturbing aspects of Jewish religious life, of Jewish educational life uh, in the modern world, is how rarely we Jews talk about God. In the Jewish religion, somehow God tends to get short shrift. Um, one often hears that Jews, even religious Jews, even synagogue-going Jews, they're ready to talk about Jewish history, Jewish culture, Jewish tradition, Jewish continuity, but God often gets lost in the shuffle. In the Solomon Schefter School in Skokie, Illinois, uh, which my children attended before we moved to New Jersey, now they attend Schefter in Bergen County, but I remember back in Skokie, the, the school had the kids do just wonderful presentations um, you know, all sorts of different concerts and plays and whatnot, in which they talked about Jewish history, Jewish culture. They talked about the arrival of our, ancest our Jewish ancestors to America. They talked about Israel. They talked about Zionism. But they never talked about God. It was interesting to me at this religious Jewish school how much we talked about tradition and history and family in a broad sense, um, but not God. It, one could say that... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were invited to these sessions. One could say that um, our ancestors who came over here to the United States, our cousins in Israel, were invited to these sessions. But God was not so much invited to these sessions. Similarly, about, gosh, this is 10 years ago, I was at a very small conference at the University of Chicago on Jewish biblical theology. And leading scholars from around the world, leading Jewish Bible scholars, talked about Jewish theology. And towards the end of the, the conference, the end of the second day of this two-day conference, Richard Elliott Friedman, whom some of you perhaps may have met, uh, or you may have seen his books, uh, your kids or grandkids might have met him at Ramah in Georgia. Uh, Richard Elliott Friedman, then of uh, the University of California, San Diego, piped up and said, why was it that we were here on a conference on Jewish biblical theology and nobody had talked about God these whole two days? And everyone around the table was terribly embarrassed to have been caught leaving out the theo part of the word theology. And everyone started talking about God really intensively all of a sudden. But uh, Dick Friedman had a great point. Somehow we got all these Jewish, leading Jewish biblical scholars uh, together and in spite of the fact that the topic was theology, God somehow didn't make it onto the agenda until the very, very end. So what, I've, uh, what I'll be talking about today, what I talk about uh, in the book that I published about a year ago, uh, is precisely this issue that somehow makes Jews, even many religious Jews, uncomfortable. I'm talking about God, and I'm taking it a step further. Not only am I talking about God, which we don't like to talk about. I'm talking about an idea of God that we were all taught in Hebrew school, in day school, in Sunday school. We don't believe it. I want to talk about God's body. And not only that, you're going to find I go even one step further. 
And you'll find that the odd claim, the revolutionary claim that I'm trying to make is not that the God of the Bible has a body, but that the God of the Bible has many bodies. Um, so I deliberately would like to do something that isn't, in my opinion, done enough in Jewish circles, which is talk about God. And I'm not going to talk about God in very abstract philosophical terms. I also want to talk about God quite literally in concrete terms. So over the course of our sessions, and also informally in, in conversations that some of us will have at, at, at meals and at some of the other time that's been set aside, um, I'd like to talk about the notion in the Bible that God has several bodies. And I'd like to talk, especially in the very last session, about what this can mean for us as Jews today, what the, this very weird idea in the Bible has to say to modern Jews. But before we do any of that, I think we have to pause, go into reverse, and talk about the starting point of my, uh, of my discussion, which is simply the idea that God in the Bible, and also, I might add, in classical rabbinic literature, in fact has a body. Uh, is a line that many of you know. You might be more familiar if we sing it. Um, God has no body. God is not a body, and we should not attribute to God any sort of body. This is, the way I was quoting it, is actually from a, po a Hebrew poetic restatement of Maimonides' 13 principles of the Jewish faith. Maimonides Rambam actually wrote, wrote the, the, the section on the 13 principles in Arabic, but we're more familiar, most of us, with the Hebrew paraphrase from the Yigdal hymn that is often sung at the end of services. And Maimonides' assertion that God does not have a body is, in fact, I think, the standard idea of Jewish theology that most of us were brought up with. Indeed, I think Jews, Christians, people who are religious, people who aren't religious, generally say that the revolutionary, one of the revolutionary aspects of the Tanakh, of the Jewish Bible, when you compare it to other ancient religious texts, is precisely the idea that the God of the Tanakh, unlike the other gods of the ancient world, is invisible. You can't see this God because this God doesn't have a body to be seen. This God is not located in one particular place. This is a God who is everywhere, but nowhere, in no one particular place. What we forget, precisely because Rambam, Maimonides, was so successful, is that when he said this, it was actually a revolutionary idea. When in smack in the middle of the Middle Ages, uh, Maimonides, and already before him, some other Jewish uh, philosophers in the early Middle Ages, especially Sa'adja Gaon, um, when they suggested that our God doesn't have a body, this was actually a new idea, and it was an idea that was rejected by many of their contemporaries, um, of their Jewish contemporaries. In fact, Scholars more recently looking at the Bible and at the Talmuds and at the Midrashic literature um, have pointed out that, in fact, the God of the Bible, the God of the Talmuds, the God of the Midrashim does seem to have a body. There is no verse anywhere in the Bible that clearly tells us that God doesn't have a body. 
And there are many, many verses that do refer to God's body part, to God's body parts, to God's location in a particular space at a particular moment. Um, this is part of what, what I point out at the beginning of my book. Some of my colleagues in rabbinic literature, especially um, Professor Yair Lorberbaum from the Bar Ilan University and Alon Goshen Gottstein from the Elijah Institute in Jerusalem, have written on God in the Talmudic literature, pointing out that there also, there are simply no statements anywhere in, in Talmudic literature that claim that God doesn't have a body, and plenty of statements that seem to assume that God does have a body. Um, it's for this reason, if you take a look at Maimonides' great, greatest philosophical work, The Guide to the Perplexed, the Moran Nebuchim, that he spends about the first third of that philosophical work trying to explain why the Bible, when it talks about this God who of course doesn't have a body, seems to refer so often to this non-bodied God's body. Before he can really get going with his philosophy, he has to spend about 75 chapters explaining away all the evidence from Judaism that actually works against one of his main bedrock beliefs. So what I'd like to do for this first session, for the, um, for the beginning of, uh, of our time, is, is simply review some of this evidence. Um, so many of us have been brought up on the idea that our God, our, our God doesn't have a body, our religion from the beginning taught that God doesn't have a body, that we might need to just review some of this evidence before I dive into the somewhat more bizarre idea that what's weird about the Bible is that God has many bodies, not just one body. So, let's take a look at some biblical texts for, uh, together for a little while. Um, let's jump in at... Um, I'd like to jump in by looking at some texts that describe how a few people became prophets. Um, so I'd like to look at Isaiah and Ezekiel and how they describe their first prophetic experience. We'll go initially to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, for those of you who have the Hebrew-English JPS Tanakh, if it's a small edition, it has this little blue cover. Um, if it's the larger edition, uh, it's got that brown color. You'll be turning to page 857. 857. Some of you brought the Jewish Study Bible. Um, if you brought the Jewish Study Bible, which is this edition, you'll be turning to page 796. 796, um, where as a matter of fact you'll see that my point of view tends to agree very heavily with that of the author of the commentary on Isaiah in the Jewish study Bibles for reasons that'll be clear if you glance at the, the end of the introduction on page 784. Um, so 796 over here. 857 over here. Let's just read a little bit. Uh, let's just read a little bit at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read out loud in Hebrew, and you should follow along in whatever language uh, you want to follow along with, in, but I'll translate as I go. Bishnat mot hamelech uziyahu va'ere et Adonai yoshevalki kisei ram venisa in the year that King Uziah died, 
I saw my Lord sitting on a throne, high and mighty, and his garment filled the palace, or filled the temple. Now, New JPS, um, both of these two editions, uh, the Jewish Study Bible and the JPS Hebrew English Tanakh, have the same translation. They're both using the, the JPS translation from the late 1980s, um, or the mid-1980s. Both of these translations, um, trans- so that one translation in both of these editions, translates it a little differently than I did. Uh, they say, I beheld my Lord. I just translated it as, I saw. The Hebrew word here, what's the crucial Hebrew word for those of you who have the Hebrew in front of you? Ro'eh. In the conjugation, va'er-er. A verb familiar to many of you, ani ro'eh, ani ra'iti, which simply means what? To see. So why does JPS use the fancy verb beheld as its translation? Because it's the Bible, um, and finish that sentence. As they think people wanted fancy, and it refers to God. In part, because it's the Bible, and they think people wanted fancy. Uh, um, Adina, I'm sorry. The word beheld removes you from the reality more than the word the word saw, and it's a, and that fits into the second half of your sentence, and it's about God. Mm-hmm. Beheld also gives you the idea that uh, that was how the person doing the viewing perceived something, rather than possibly what actually was there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that it's more about the perception inside Isaiah's mind as opposed to a reality really being seen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Saw implies an optical image on your eyeballs. Yes. Beheld can be any other way of perceiving. Great. I mean, that, that, that dovetails very well. I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Uh, with Jerry's, uh, and your name is? So Larry's remark dovetails very well. Saw, the word saw, means that this little part of our anatomy is doing something which then connects to this part of our brain and it's reflecting something that's really out there. Beheld, who knows? Beheld could be something else. Maybe it's all happening in here and there's nothing out there. One la- there's still some hands, but one last remark that I want to move on. Um, the Hebrew word that's used is not ra'iti, it's ve'er'eh. It's more than or it's something different from the, no, the no, plain this is the vav haipuf. This is the vav consecutive or conversive form. It's the exact same as raiti. Va er e and va er and raiti are two conjugations of the same verb that mean the exact same thing. It's, it's the past. It's the past. Correct. Va er e, va, and then a verb in the prefix or imperfect form is a past tense. Um, so it is the. Uh, well, actually, one more comment. Mm-hmm. What I see is more critical. It means I see God like I can see everything else. So it becomes a common thing. God, you take him off from his holiness. Exactly. And this goes back to, I'm sorry, your name? Barbara. To to Barbara's uh, initial remark, it's about God. And we Jews don't use the verb see with God. 
Um, and so the translators, look, the translators, they went to Hebrew school too. They, they go to shul. Okay, if they're like a lot of other Bible scholars, maybe they get to shul late. But Yigdal, you know, you know, I'm writing a commentary in the book of Psalms, which is just great because Jews use Psalms at the beginning of the morning service, or so I'm told. Um, I daven every day, but I'm never there that early. Um, but Yigdal, Yigdal's at the end. Uh, so even H.L. Ginsburg, my predecessor at the Jewish Theological Seminary, I don't know when he got to shul. I know he went to shul every Shabbos, and I know that he was there by Yigdal. Um, because if you're not there by Yigdal, you're not there, and I know he's a shulgar. Um, they know, ain't lutamutaguf. He doesn't have a body. There's nothing to be seen. So I think what you can see here, it's just fascinating in terms of like sort of Jewish cultural history, the translators didn't want to come out and admit what the Hebrew actually says. But the verb used, va'er-eh, it's just like ra'iti, it's the verb ro'eh, it means to see. We're not used to applying that, God, that, that verb to God. But, you know, Isaiah didn't get that memo. We all got the memo from Maimonides, but Isaiah lived a long time before Maimonides, and he never got the memo. Um, he sees God, and he describes... What's interesting, then, is, is what, what does he actually then go on to describe? Take a look in verses 1, verse 2. Um, in verses 1, 2, and 3, I'll read quickly from verse 2. You can follow along in whatever language. Sira, uh, verses 2 and 3. Seraphim omdim mi ma'alo... So he goes on to, so he says, I saw God, and then what does he go on to describe, and what does he not go on to describe? He doesn't describe God. He doesn't describe God. He describes... He describes the, those attending around him. The attendants, the God's servants, the seraphim. The seraphim, which are actually, seraphim here means, it's, it's, seraphim are flying heavenly snakes, as a matter of fact, uh, which we're told have uh, six wings. Um, a descri- what's the description of God? Clothing. Uh, the description, Phyllis, of? Of his clothing. And fills the entire temple. And what fills the entire temple? His clothing. So the prophet goes on to say, after saying that he saw God, he goes on to describe God's clothing. He mentions a throne. He mentions a palace room. And he mentions in some detail the heavenly beings that were attending to God. And he explains what they were doing. They were praying to God. They would call out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But... The, the prophet actually doesn't describe what he saw. That's very, very interesting. Um, why might the prophet not describe what he saw? Knowing what you know about biblical law, um, even if you've only read one law, like the very first one in the Ten Commandments, or the second one, depending on how you count, why might Isaiah be willing to say, I saw God, but not be willing to explain what God looked like? Mm-hmm. It might be a form of making an image. Hmm? Describing God is making an image. Um, exactly. Or maybe to phrase it slightly differently, if he, if he describes God, what is that encouraging somebody to go do? To make a painting or to make a sculpture of what he described. I think that Isaiah already knows the Ten Commandments. That memo he got. That memo Isaiah got. 
Isaiah knows we Israelites, we Judeans, we don't paint pictures of our God. We don't make sculptures of our God. Um, not because this God doesn't have a body to be painted or to be imitated or to be imitated in, in a painting or a sculpture, but rather because there's only one of, there's just this real being and making a representation of it our own human representation with our hands, that would be a terrible thing to do. But I think that we Jews in the 21st century, the 20th century, the 13th century, whatever, we tend to read the Ten Commandments in light of Maimonides. When we read, you should not make any idol, we sort of say, well, of course we shouldn't because God doesn't have a body, so why would we make an idol representing something that isn't there to be represented. Why would we make an, a, a picture to represent something that is present nowhere in the universe? But that's actually not, I think, what the biblical authors intended in the Ten Commandments. Um, the biblical authors, I think, had a different point of view. When the biblical authors said, don't make any physical representation of God, they meant that in the same way that the Congress of the United States and the Treasury Department and the Secret Service say, don't make any copies of a dollar bill. <laughs> when, the, when U.S. law says you're not allowed to make a copy of a dollar bill, especially in green paper um, of that size, the reason isn't that there's no such thing as a dollar bill to be copied. On the contrary, the point is dollar bills have value. And if everybody can start making pictures of them that are highly accurate, they will lose their value. I think that's what's behind the Ten Commandments in their original biblical setting. Yes, God has a body, but that body is God's own self. We're not allowed with our hands to make some sort of human, inaccurate, pathetic attempt at a representation of that reality. So I think that Isaiah does not describe what he saw, not because he didn't see anything. He tells us at the very beginning of the verse 1 that he saw something, but he doesn't want us to use that information incorrectly. So instead, he describes what is around it. Um, and what's his reaction in verse, um, verses 4 and 5 to, to having seen God? Um, in verse 5, I'll just uh, I'll read this. Actually, no, we'll read verse 4 too. So follow along in verse 4. Vayanu'u amot hasipim. Vayanu'u amot hasipim mikol hakorei v'habayit yimale ashan. The uh, and the um, the posts of the door um, would uh, were shaking or trembling from the, the the sound of the one who was calling out and the house was filling up with smoke, or the, the, the palace was filling up with smoke. Va'omar, and I said, Oili ki nidmeti ki ish tmei svatayim anochi v'toch am tmei svatayim anochi yoshev ki et hamelech Adonai tzvaot ra'u enai. I said, Oive, woe is me, I'm doomed. For I'm a man of impure lips, and I, did, and I dwell among a people of impure lips, and... It's the king, Hashem of the armies, Hashem of the heavenly hosts, that my eyes have seen. Um, so his reaction is what? He's scared. Um, the general idea in the Bible is what happens if you see God? 
Yeah, does anyone, th- can anyone think of a particular passage here? Moses. If Moses could not see God, how much ego could Isaiah have? So one of the lines that we read about Moses is God tells Moses, and we're going to look at this in more detail in just a few minutes, so we're not going to turn to it right now, because we're going to, we'll turn to it in a minute. But there is a famous passage in Exodus chapter 33, in which God tells Moses, Lo yir'ani ha'adam v'achai. A human being cannot see me and live. Um, I, well, Isaiah got that memo. Isaiah knew this idea, you can't see God and live. He saw God, and he therefore thought, Nidmeti, I'm done, I'm doomed. I'm about to die. Um, And this is a standard idea you find all over certain parts of the Bible that, again, not that there's no God, no divine body to see, but rather that if you see the divine body, you'll be killed because the sight is so incredibly overwhelming. Now, again, it's worth pausing here for a second. That line, lo yir'ani ha'adam v'chai, a human can't see me and live, I think people sometimes think of that as, yeah, that's one of the verses in the Bible that says, that God is invisible, that you can't see God, that God has no body. But that's not what it says at all. It says that God does have a body, you can't see it. I'm mean, sorry, God does have a body, you can even see that body, but there will be an inevitable and quick result if you see that body. But it's, it's actually kind of odd that people quote that line, oh, that proves that our God is invisible, can't be seen, has no body. That's, that's the exact opposite of what the line is saying. Similarly, if I say... You cannot touch a high-voltage wire and live. I'm not saying that there's no such thing in the universe as a high-voltage wire. On the contrary, I'm saying there is such a thing, and they are real. They are dangerously and, um, and appallingly real. The same thing's being said over in Exodus 33 in that one verse about God's body. So Isaiah sees God's body and is afraid because he expects to die. What he goes on to discover in verse 6 is that there are exceptions to that rule. One of the seraphim, one of these flying heavenly snakes, grabs with some tongs a coal from the altar, flies over, touches the coal to his impure, to Isaiah's impure lips, and having done so, for some reason Isaiah is inoculated just in time, and he's able to continue li- well, living, talking. In fact, he becomes rather bold and begins uh, voluntarily taking part in the discussions of the Heavenly Council. Let's look at one other prophetic text, or maybe we'll look at two other, I think, um, that will give us, again, some sense of, um, of the divine body. I'm sorry, one last comment on, on Isaiah 6. The covered their eyes as well. Yes. Yes, great point. Yes, great point. I'm sorry, what's your name? I can't see from way over here. I'm sorry? Uh, Morris? Yes, Morris has a great point. Uh, it's not only lo yir'ani ha'adam v'chai. It's not just that humans can't... It isn't just humans who can't live... Uh, who can't look at God and, and continue living. Apparently, these heavenly beings also are afraid to look directly at God because two of their wings they, they use to cover their eyes. They're covering their eyes to protect themselves from the sight of the divine body. Even a seraph. Even a flying heavenly snake could be killed by the sight of God. Great point. What's interesting, by the way, and this is not the only place this happens in the Bible, is that Isaiah, therefore, at least for the few moments, is at a higher level than the angels. Um, Some of you might know the beautiful line from Psalm 8, a very famous line, um, 
that we are, that God made us but little lower than the angels, uh, than the angels. Um, but there are places in the Tanakh, and this is one of them, where human, where a few specific human beings, uh, at least briefly, are not a little lower than the angels. Uh, human beings briefly can be a little higher than the angels. And Morris, I'm glad you pointed that out. I, I forgot to mention that. Yes, this Isaiah has the privilege here of being a little higher than the angels. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the, the atonement for seeing God and talking about it is not touching the coal to his eyes, it's touching the coal to his mouth. Correct. The, the problem is not that he saw it, it's that he tries to express in language what he thinks he saw. And this is figurative language, not real, uh, you know, it, it's poetic. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, um... How do you know it's figurative language that it's not to be taken just at its yes, obvious meaning? He's talking about Seraphim too, and I certainly don't believe that uh, something like that is literally true. Maybe you don't, but that doesn't mean that he didn't. Well, the, the, the um, audience for it 3,000, 4,000 years ago is certainly receptive to this idea. Yeah, so uh, as, as a Bible scholar, the first thing that I'm always trying to do is first, let's get into the mindset of our ancestors and our forebears in ancient Israel. Let's try to understand these words as they would have understood them. Later, we can also talk about what it means to us, and that's especially in the fourth session what we'll do, but it'll creep into the conversation before then. Um, but I, I have no indication that he thought he was using figurative language. I, I think that they did believe in seraphim. We actually have, I, I actually, shame I don't have it with me, um, a, a picture of this, but we actually have a seal from Isaiah's time in Jerusalem. A seal is, by, by that I mean something that was used to stamp a document closed. It's a piece of clay, um, or it can be a piece of um, a hard rock that's been sculpted, and you would stamp it onto hot wax to close a document, to officially seal a document. And seals will often have a decoration. Outside of ancient Israel, seals typically have uh, a picture of some, some gods or some deities interacting. Um, there's a, Israelite seals, interestingly, do not depict a god, but they do, literally, but they do depict God sometimes symbolically as the sun or a sun disk with a crown on top of it. And there's, for example, there's a seal belonging to a man named Ashna, who is a servant of King Ahaz, in Jerusalem, so living in Jerusalem the same time as Isaiah, he's a servant of the king, he has his own seal, this is kind of like having the, the, the American Express press platinum card, most Israelites don't have a seal. Um, he, this guy traveled in very high circles, Isaiah also traveled in very high circles, it's inconceivable these two guys didn't know each other, Isaiah, Jerusalem was a small town and they were from the same stratum of society. On that seal, you see a circle with a crown on top of it, which was a, a symbolic representation of Hashem, the God of Israel. And around it are a bunch of seraphim with wings. I think that they, it's exactly what Isaiah, his contemporary, was talking about. I think that they thought of this stuff quite literally. Uh, and they even made pictures of it. Not of God, God they pictured symbolically, but they did make a picture of the seraphim that surrounded. And there are other ancient Israelite seals that, that, that show pictures of seraphim. So no, I, I don't think it's that... He sinned in describing what he saw. The reason it touches his lips, that is interesting. I think it's because he described himself as being of impure lips. 
So if somehow that's where the ritual and ethical impurity is focused, that's what was what was purged, what was cleaned. I can go into some more detail of what's, what's behind that term, but I, I think I want to move on to Ezekiel. So uh, just, just one more comment, and let's move to Ezekiel. A double comment. One, why would they cover their eyes not to see God and not possibly to protect others from seeing their eyes. Because they cover their face, and, and if they're doing anything else, moving, so on, they're going to have to see something. So it could be they were protecting Isaiah from their eyes. And second, the quote from Psalms is not necessarily saying less than angels or than heavenly help. Tell our angels. That would get us into a long discussion of, of Psalm 8 and what the word Elohim means, um, Elohim. The word Elohim can, is simply the plural word for divine beings. I think that there it, it is referring to what we in English usually call angels, immortal divine beings up in heaven, but not God himself. Um, but, but Psalm 8 would be a, 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 nice, uh, a nice discussion. I'm writing the JPS Psalms commentary. It's... <laughs> Don't tell anyone in Philadelphia, but it's one of the few commentaries I've actually finished writing, according to my contract, which I signed. I'm supposed to be a lot further than number eight. Uh, But anyway, we could talk about that, but I don't want to get too far off track right now. Let's move to another passage. Well, actually, but real quickly, the possibility that they're trying to protect Isaiah from the sight of their face, that's an interesting possibility. I don't think that that's the case, although you, you may be right, but the reason I don't think that's the case is that if Isaiah saw God safely, for sure, Calvahomer, he could have seen the Seraphim safely. I think, therefore, that what Morris suggested is the more likely explanation, although both are possible, that they're covering their face to protect themselves so that they don't see the being whom they're serving. Um, let's move on to one other prophetic text. Um, Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3. We'll glance at a few verses from Ezekiel 1 through 3. In the new JPS, this Hebrew-English JPS, it's going to be page 1155. And in the Jewish study Bible, we're going to be starting at page 1045. So 1155 in JPS... 10.45 10.45 in Jewish Study Bible. Actually, yeah, 10.45. What's the section? Ezekiel, chapter 1. Um, we're not going to read the entirety of the chapter because it's extraordinarily long and difficult. Um, in, the first, uh, in the first chapter, if you glance through this very long chapter, you'll see that... This is actually very similar to Isaiah chapter 1. This is a prophet describing his first prophetic experience, and it follows the same pattern, but the pattern has gotten bigger. Each element of the pattern gets, instead of a couple of words, it gets several verses. Um, So at the beginning, it describes the timing of this, what year this happened. In verse 3, he says, God's word came to me. In verse 4, he says, Va'ere, same verb that we had back in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, I saw. Uh, and then he goes on to describe in great detail what he saw. He describes all sorts of atmospheric, um, meteorological um, occurrences. Uh, he describes, again, in great, great detail 
some sort of heavenly beings, in, in fact, possibly some sort of heavenly vehicle, because it, it, it has wheels as well as wings. Um, he describes these heavenly beings, chayot, or living beings, creatures, in extraordinary detail. They had four different faces in verse, te- uh, in verse 10. They could move in any direction. They were never moving backwards or sideways. They only moved forward because they had four faces and four different kinds of faces. He describes this a little bit. And he's having trouble describing it. He keeps on saying, demut mashahu or mar'e mashahu. It looked like this or the appearance was like this. It's as if he's seeing something completely unfamiliar. Not something that you normally see on the planet Earth. So he doesn't have the vocabulary to describe it. So he, just, so he says, it had the appearance of such and such, or it had the look of such and such. Um, again, a great deal of detail, and then a, a great deal of detail on the, these beings, and then he describes the being who was the center of focus, the one that was sitting on a throne. This is in verse 26. Um, and he says there was lo- something that looked like sapphire stone and it had the appearance of a chair or a throne and on what looked like a chair was the was what looked like something that seemed to 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 have the appearance of a human that was on top of it going up and i saw and there is something like a bright kind of shiny stone called hashmal in hebrew in biblical hebrew and it looked like fire within that being, um, all around it, from what looked like its loins, or the middle of its body, and up. And from what looked like its loins and down, it had the appearance of what seemed like fire, and there was a sort of brightness all around it. And it was like the brightness of a rainbow, which you would see in a cloud on, on on a rainy day. That was what the brightness seemed to look like all around. And that thing, that thing that I was seeing, this thing that looked kind of like a human being, it's fascinating, his language, looked like, um, seemed like, had the appearance of. So that thing was, the, had the appearance of what looks like God's kavod, God's presence. I saw it, and I fell on my face, or I, I genuflected, um, and I heard a, ta- a voice talking. So he describes this heavenly vehicle, heavenly beings that are on the vehicle or or carrying the vehicle. And then he describes in very hesitant language the being on the throne. Um, It had the general shape of a human being and an extraordinary kind of brightness that he, he can't quite describe using the vocabulary he has available to him. And he tells us that that was actually the presence of God, the kavod of God. Um, how does this compare to what we saw in Isaiah? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a word here which is different than Isaiah. Mm-hmm. That's uh, uh, that he saw visions of God. You say he saw it, right? saw visions. Mm-hmm. And it, so it leads you to think that this might have been an apparition some something, a dream, and yep. not an optical image. Yeah, that you're in verse 1, and I saw marot of God. 
Now, marot is a noun that comes from the same verbal root as the verb to see. In English, when we use the noun vision, it has a more abstract, maybe spiritual, maybe intellectual sound to it. Um, it becomes more something that's happening in the mind. But in, and by the way, if we say, I envision something, when we have a verb from that word in English, again, it's a little more abstract, it's, it's a little more fancy, it's a little more a mental process as opposed to an optical process. But in Hebrew, the shoreh, the root, the three-letter root of the, the noun marot, is the same as the root for the verb saw. It's resh alef hey, same as va'er er, ra'iti. So I think that here again, I'm not positive that in this case it was that the translators are, are, are hedging their bets. It may just be that, it may, it may be that, but it also it may just be that the English word vision has a connotation that differs from the Hebrew word marot. But I think that the Hebrew marot does not necessarily connote a neurological phenomenon or a spiritual phenomenon as opposed to an optical phenomenon. Um, I, I think you have a good point, and it's, it's a point based on a really good close reading of the English, but I think that the Hebrew won't quite support your point. So I, in Hebrew, he's still talking about an optical phenomenon, I think. Um, how, do, how else does this compare? Yes? Um, Hi, Barbara. Uh, Barbara. Yes. Uh, he actually describes God, and the God he describes does not appear to be wearing clothes. And fire seems to take the place of clothes in terms of hiding what you really cannot see. Mm-hmm. Or if he's wearing clothes, it better be that kind of children's pajama that's fire resistant because uh, no, but, but I mean there's you know it's very clear it's the uh, man there's yeah there's a little more detail here he does to some extent tell us the shape it had the form of a human being um, that probably I think means broadly speaking kind of a roundish thing on top and these rectangular things on the sides and down on the bottom too I think it's what he means. By the way, can anyone think, where else in the Bible do you have the suggestion that, the sh- broadly speaking, without going into a whole lot of details, um, the general shape of God is the same as the general shape of a human being? Where else do you see that? Mm-hmm. Man was made in God's image. Um, that human beings were made in the image of God. Where is that from, do you know? Uh, Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which in our third session we'll look at in some more detail. Um, The conception here in Ezekiel is, I think, identical, and some of the language is the same, some of it's a little different, uh, to the conception in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Actually, we modern Bible scholars believe that Genesis 1 and Ezekiel are very closely related. Some of you may know, and we'll get a little bit more into this later, uh, in our second session and third session, uh, the modern theory that the Torah, the five books of Moses, were created when an editor or a group of editors took four originally independent documents and edited them together. One of those documents is called the priestly document, or the P-text, um, and it was written by priests, by Kohanim in Jerusalem, um, Ezekiel was from a priestly family. He was a Kohen. And 
one finds again and again that the priestly sections of the five books of Moses and the book of Ezekiel are very closely related to each other. Um, so it's not a coincidence that the, the, the idea we get is the same idea, that the general shape of God's body is in fact, broadly speaking, the shape of a human body. Um, so there's more description. It's, it's different from Isaiah. Um, what else? What's the same? What's different? Uh, name? The difference is that Ezekiel is personally, it's the first person. I saw, I did, I did. Compared to Genesis? No, compared with Isaiah, where the narrator is saying Isaiah. No, no, in Isaiah he does say va'er'eh. Bishnot motamelech uziah va'er'eh. No, it's first person there. They're both first person narratives. Uh, take, a, take a look on Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. But it's, pre- it's preceded by the word first person, I saw. I saw. Um, so, actually, so your point is still a good point, it just flipped. A similarity is these are both first person narratives in which a person claims to have seen God. Now that Isaiah saw God and then goes on in greater detail to describe what? The heavenly beings. Um, Here, also, on the one hand it's different, as Barbara points out, because he does give a little description of what God looked like, but most of the chapter is a description not of God, but of the beings, the creatures, the vehicle that that, that surrounded God and served God. Um, so there's a difference in that there's a little description, but there's also a great similarity in that Ezekiel mostly gives us a description of the other beings. There's only one verse that describes God. There's about 20 verses describing the other beings. Um, Morris, you were waiting. Yeah, basically he sees their faces their faces are not. He does see the faces of the, of the creatures, the chayot. And he, he's describing all the in some detail, yes. So, yeah, he describes the four faces of these creatures, of the heavenly creatures, these angelic beings. These are not the seraphim; it's a different group called the chayot. Um, but uh, but he describes them in in more detail. He does see this. He does see the faces. So they apparently are not as afraid of looking at God. But, but he, does, he still doesn't describe the face of God. No. He, it's the face of the chayot, the heavenly creatures. Uh, there's a hand over here. Mm? Uh, just thinking, too, is the vehicle. He describes the way the wheels are situated. It seems like a physical impossibility because uh, I think you have four wheels, on each, uh, two on each side, <laughs> but they intersect. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not that they're, you know, they're small wheels so that they don't interfere with each other, but they're large wheels and they actually cross over. One wheel crosses over the other. It's very... physical impossibility. Yeah. It's very hard to figure out exactly what this thing looked like. But whatever it was, it was spectacular and it seems likely that it was physically impossible for us to imagine building such a thing. Um, even to imagine building such a thing, and yet it worked. There's a certain science fiction element here. Um, yeah. Um, Sydney? Uh, Sandy, I'm sorry, Sandy? Write letters, just the wrong order, just a little dyslexia there. So. He does uh, talk about Mared, Tumut, and Vos, Adonai. So I don't think you can tell from this what 
Yeah. And from the fact that he's a priest, and from the fact that the priestly document in the Pentateuch talks a lot about the kavod, we'll get more into this during our third session, um, I think that we can tell that he... I, I think that the word kavod actually means body of God. Um, that'll become clearer from a lot of the priestly texts which talk about the kavod. But the kavod is a technical term in the, in the Bible, especially in sections of the Bible written by priests, by kohanim, that refers to the actual physical, visible presence of God. Generally, however, it is surrounded by a thick cloud. So it's the visible presence of God that you can't see because there's a very thick black cloud around it and then tremendous amounts of light coming through the black cloud, which give you just some impression of how incredibly bright the kavod itself is. And I think the general idea is you look at the kavod for a second and you'll be burnt to a crisp. Ezekiel becomes an exception to that rule. But kavod, I think, actually means, um, I actually think, means the body of God. Um, if, if, by the way, those of you who know Hebrew, kavod is from what shoresh, from what, what verbal root, what three-letter root. And what does that, what does kaved mean? Heavy. Heavy. It's something that has substance to it. Kavod is often translated as the presence of God with a capital P. New JPS might even actually do that. Yeah, presence with a capital P. Or glory with a capital G. Presence and glory have a certain abstract ring to them in English. But the Shoresh Kuf Bet Dalid in Hebrew implies it's something that has weight to it. It's something that has substance. You could put this on a scale, and if not for the fact that the scale would be burnt to a crisp and would, you know, would dissolve into just you know, a few electrons, you could weigh it. Um, so that's part of why I think Kavod really actually means God's body a different kind of body than we have in various respects, um, but it's something that actually has mass uh, to it. Yes? It seems to me when you read it in Hebrew, maybe also in English, you get the impression that Yechezkel is far removed from the regular, but in Yeshayahu he speaks, God sits in the chair, saying, I can sit in the chair, but when he speaks about seeing things, Heavens open. That's far away. It speaks about Kashmal and all these exotic things which are not regular in everyday life. Yes. Yes, exactly. There's, Ezekiel's description is exotic. Yeah. It's something not just foreign but otherworldly, whereas Isaiah's is actually much more similar to what we might see here on earth, just more scary. Um, one could almost say that if you look through these chapters in detail, you'll see they follow the exact same outline, but Ezekiel is filling in details of the outline with extraordinary detail and exoticness and a certain science fiction quality. You might almost say that they're similar, but Ezekiel is much more Baroque or even Rococo. Um, you might put it that way. One more comment. Yes, uh, I'm sure your name. Uh, a parallel text, Ezekiel 10. Yes, very it's important. Much, it's also prosaic. It talks about the presence. Uh, for when the presence of the Lord moved the chariot to the platform, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. 
the whole house was clothed with clouds. So at a different point, Ezekiel is also being prosaic and, and putting it forward in a just now of course I can see the presence of God. Any question about me, I saw the presence of God moving. It seems it, it, it supports your position that it's yeah, in Ezekiel chapter 10, if you just go a few pages forward, there is another description, and there it becomes even more clear that this is a physical thing in space, in time. He sees the kavod again in the Jerusalem temple, sitting on a throne made from the two kruvim. The kruvim are um, the cherubs. The kruvim are these um, beings that have the face of a human the wings of an eagle, and the body probably of a bull. Um, actually, there's an ancient Israelite depiction of a crew on the handout, but you don't have the handouts yet, so this is kind of a pointless thing to point out. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's skip that. I don't want to get off the handout right now. Um, but and it's, it's not that clear anyway. Um, the... The Kruvim are these creatures, and they've got wings inside the Holy of Holies of the Temple. Uh, there are statues of Kruvim, and the wings are touching each other, and they form a sort of throne chair. And what Ezekiel sees is God gets up from the throne chair, God walks over out of the Holy of Holies, out of the Temple, a crew, a real crew, flies down from heaven, God steps onto the groove and flies off towards the east, which means that, um, which has all sorts of implications. For one thing, what does it imply about the temple? That's where he lived. Lived, past tense, crucial. And the temple now is just this building. It used to be God's home, and therefore no foreign army could ever destroy it or even enter the city it was located in. Um, but now it's gone, and it's no longer the temple, it's just some building, and the king of Babylon is going to destroy it in a very, uh, a very short while from now. Um, but, more to our point, and it flies east, uh, it flies east towards Babylon, which is going to be the location of the Israelites' exile, of the Judeans' exile. Uh, so in a sense, God goes into exile um, along with the Israelites. But, the point, I'm sorry, what's, what's your name? I forgot your name. Howard. But what Howard is pointing out, more importantly for our point, is that yes, the kavod that Ezekiel sees standing up, walking out of the building, getting onto the crew, and then flying away on the back of the crew, clearly this is a physical being. Um, some sort of a physical being with some substance. It's located in space and in time. Um, and yeah, from there too, I think it's, it's clear that we've got ourselves a, uh, not some abstract idea, but something much more concrete. Um, Morris? Why did his contemporaries and the redactors later of Tanakh accept the story? Why not? Because you could say, well, that's a story. Um, well, he was on mushrooms. I think that, uh, I mean, that, that is one interesting way of interpreting Ezekiel that's, that people have mentioned. Um, I think that to Israelite culture, and this is the point I'm just trying to make in this first session, to Israelite culture, all of this was believable. The idea that there is a God, and that God, like all things in the universe, has a physical being, that was just a believable story. There was no reason that they wouldn't believe this. Uh, and that, that's the point that I'm making. It's just normal in the Bible that God has a body. 
Um, Ezekiel doesn't describe the body in great detail. There's a little bit of description, but I think Ezekiel basically is similar to Isaiah. Ezekiel is more comfortable describing what he saw around God than describing God, God's self, than describing the actual kavod, probably for the same reason. Ezekiel doesn't want people going off and making statues of this. And the truth is, although he gives a few details, it's not enough that you could really go and paint a picture or, or, or create a statue. Um, the picture you would paint would end up being you know, so highly abstract or impressionistic that it, it wouldn't really be much of a picture. And I think it's the same idea. He believes God has a body. If you go into chapter 2, you'll see that he's terribly frightened. In fact, after this experience at the beginning of chapter 3, he mentions that he, he, he remains in a catatonic state for, if memory serves, about a week. Uh, he can't speak after he sees this. It takes him um, about a week before he can even begin to talk about it. So it's an extraordinary, frightening event, as it was for Isaiah. Uh, it's something he doesn't want to describe in too much detail, so he describes what was peripheral, not what was central. Um, and the basic idea is, but of course, God had a body. He doesn't pause to defend himself on that point. We all know that God has a body. He doesn't want to describe it to you in detail. What he needs to explain to you is how he actually survived this event. Um, let's look at one or two, one more prophetic text, just real, real quickly. Take a look at the book of Amos. Uh, the book of Amos or Amos. Uh, so this is going to be in New JPS on page 1000. 324. So if you've got this new JPS or the Brown edition, page 1324. And over in the Jewish Study Bible, it's going to be on page 1191. So JSB 1191. So this is Amos chapter 9, verse 1. Amos chapter 9, verse 1 where Amos simply tells us, Ra'iti et Adonai nitzav al hamizbeach vayomer ha-ha-kaftor v'yir'ashu ha-sipim. I saw my Lord standing over the altar, and he said, hit, um, hit the, the round part on the Bible so that the threshold will, will shake. Very similar, actually, to Isaiah chapter 6. Um, he sees God, and there's this idea that the sipim, the threshold, or the, um, the door frame, is shaking because of God's presence. Um, in this case, we get the verb ra'iti, uh, which had, has come up before. I saw, just a, a simple form of the past tense. I saw God. And what's interesting about Amos, actually, is he doesn't even pause to say... Um, I was afraid. I, I was sure I was going to die. I was, so, I was so blown away that I couldn't talk for days and days. No, he just says, I saw God, and then he just goes on to, des- to describe what was going on. It doesn't even seem remarkable to him. So here we've got the idea that a prophet saw God, but it wasn't even so terribly unusual. In other words, not only did Amos not get the memo from Maimonides that God doesn't have a body... Interestingly, Amos does not seem to have gotten the memo from, from Exodus chapter 33 that says humans cannot live if they see that body. He describes God's body as something that you know, he saw and it's, it's really not such a big deal. 
really not a very big deal at all. Um, these, are, these are all texts that I, I think are showing us that, yes, the assumption is God has a body. The only question is, what's the nature of that body, and to what extent can humans perceive that body uh, without damage? That's the only issue. But the possibility that God doesn't have a body, that's just not coming up here. Maimonides is the radical. Maimonides and other philosophers of the Middle Ages are the ones who, who are coming up with this new idea that God doesn't have a body. Let's look at one more text that describes divine embodiment. Uh, and it's an especially complicated and therefore interesting one. Uh, take a look. Let's take a look at Exodus Chapter 33, Shmot Lamed Gimel, Exodus chapter 33. So in New JPS, we're going to be on page 186. Uh, so JPS Hebrew English 186. And Jewish Study Bible, interestingly, also page 186. How odd. Yeah, must be a sign. Um, yeah, also page 186, uh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. This, we're actually jumping into the middle of a story here. Um, this describes the aftermath of the golden calf incident. So the people have built the golden calf, and God is not happy about it, neither is Moses. Uh, there is various forms of punishment that occur. And then in the chapter that follows, in chapter 33, which we'll look at, we get a variety of reflections on the presence of God. So let's just read through this and see, um, see what we get. It, my, my opinion about this chapter is a very complex chapter. Actually, I have to admit that when I was... I spent about 10, 11 years working on this book. And at an earlier stage, one idea that I had was maybe focusing the entire book around Exodus 33. It's such a difficult, complicated chapter and a rich chapter that one idea I had was just making the whole book about the, that one chapter. Obviously, I ended up not going in that direction, but that's just to give you some sense of the complexity and the richness of this chapter. <coughs> so let's just read on through. Um, you know, I wonder if, uh, if someone could grab me a, uh, a drink of water. That'd be helpful. Uh, thanks. Um, so uh, Exodus 33. After the golden calf had been destroyed and a great number of the people had been killed, the Lord said to Moses, um, "Get up, go up from uh, go 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 away from here, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Go towards the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." Um, concerning which I swore, saying, I will give it to your descendants. And I shall send my, I shall send a malach in front of you. Malach is usually translated angel, but I'll... Messenger. Could just be a messenger. But we'll, we'll see in our second session that very often the word malach in the Torah doesn't mean a messenger, an angel, some heavenly or earthly being who is on a mission from God, sometimes the word malach in Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew, can mean a small-scale manifestation of God. Sometimes it can mean just um, 
God's presence, but not all of God's presence. Um, some body of God or manifestation of God or part of God that is only part. By the way, there's a word in Sanskrit in Hinduism, in early Hinduism, that describes the exact same idea. Does anyone happen to know? Avatar, or actually in Sanskrit, avatara. An avatara, or in English it becomes avatar, is, is, I think is the exact same meaning as the word malach in this sense of the word. Um, so I think we can actually translate this um, y'all go up to the land of Israel and I will send before you an avatar and I will expel the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites um, from that land and you should go to the land flowing with milk and honey because I myself will not go with, in, in your midst because you're too stubborn. Um, I won't go with you lest I destroy you on the way. Um, let me just read verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read a little selectively to focus on the parts that I want to focus on. I'll read it first in Hebrew, and I'm going to translate the parts that I'm interested in. Vishalachti lefanecha malach vigerashti et hakinaani kilo e'ele bekir becha pen achelcha baderech I will send in front of you an avatar and I will expel the Canaanites. And I will not go in your midst, lest I destroy you along the way. What's interesting, what's odd about these sentences? Who's doing the expelling? And who isn't doing the expelling? Uh, Barbara? Well, if God, God's self, God, if God's entirety goes, God is so um, electric, shall we say, with the, and dangerous that God is likely to um, just assume them. And don't forget, this came just after the plagues from the uh, golden Yeah, we know God's angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know God's angry right no, now. No, what I'm saying is, you know, so I think that's part of it. Yet, if God just sends a portion of God's self, then they will be safe and the and God's energy will just expel the other nations and mm-hmm. consume the Israelites. Good. Jerry? I, I was just going to say that the, the, uh, God going in their midst fully, he knows that they are going to sit along the way. That they're not going to pay attention to what they're supposed to do. Based upon their past behavior. So if God, if God fully is with them, the anger, there's going to be an occasion for anger, and it's just not going to work. Um, so is God with them, or is God not with them, according to these two verses? Is God, in other words, is this, a re, is this a set of verses in which we're finding out about divine absence among the people, or divine presence? Divine Sandy? Oh. Oh, no, you're Sandy, you're... Adina, I'm sorry. Yeah, first of all, I think, I think that this seems similar to me as Moses' experience on my time when he couldn't see all of God because he was killing him. In the same way, God can't be with the people in his entirety because it would be too much for them. I, I don't believe in that just anger. 
It's partially anger, but it's more than just anger. The God can't fully be with them. Uh, it, it's, it's just too much. It's a matter of anger, but it also it's a matter of something else. Just in the nature of God, it's not moral indignation. It's just that God is too electric, too high voltage. What's odd about these verses to me is is this sort of interplay of divine presence and absence. On the one hand, God says, I'm not going to be among you. And yet God uses the first person when to talk about what's going to happen to the Canaanites. Vigerashti. I will expel the Canaanites. So first, like the Malach is being sent rather than God. But does it say, and then the Malach, the angel, will do the dirty work? No, the Malach apparently is a part of God because the first person verb is used, I will expel them. Um, so I'm sending a part of myself, I'm sending this avatar, and so the work will be done by me, but I won't be fully in your presence. You're getting some idea here that God has a physical presence, but it's too much for the people, so there can be just a discrete part of that presence, which is God. That's why you get the first person verb, I will expel, the gerashti, but it isn't exactly God, or it isn't all of God. There's still some hands, but we're running out of time. I want to get a little further into this chapter. So let's keep on going. In verse 4, the people hear this, and they take this as some sort of bad news, uh, because they go into mourning. They hear that God is no longer fully with them, and they take off all their jewelry. They go into mourning. It would be inappropriate having heard what they just heard, to continue wearing their jewelry. Um, in verse 6, this continues, they take off all of their jewelry. Then we're told, somewhat abruptly, in verse 7, the verb form switches. Let me see if the, the English it does. Yeah, in, in English it does this too. There's a little line, I guess, and we start getting a different kind of verb. Now Moses would take the tent, or Moses used to take a tent, and he would pitch it outside the camp, um, at some distance from the camp, and at this tent, God would come and talk to Moses. Um, and there's a description of this um, in some detail. We won't read the whole thing, but let's say in verse 9, it would happen when Moses arrived at the tent that God, that the pillar of cloud would come down and would stand at the entrance of the tent and it would speak to Moses. And the whole people saw this and when this happened they would stand up. Verse 11, and God would speak to Moses, panim el panim, literally face to face or directly. Like a human being, like a man speaks to his neighbor. And then he, Moses, would return to the tent, um, but his servant Joshua would stay at the tent the whole time. So here we've got another description of divine presence. And this one, it's a little odd in that it's not the next thing that happened. This is a description of something that happened again and again. The verb form being used here in biblical Hebrew describes a recurring event, something that happened not just once, but again and again over time. And God is present to some degree, but where is God present? In the cloud. So it, there's something visible, 
but not quite visible. I think the idea is that God is somewhere in the midst of this pillar of cloud so that we can't see God. So we can see that there's a... We we know that God is there, but we can't see God. Paradoxically, as a result, we can look at it. If If God fully were there, we couldn't look, right? Because if we did, we'd die. But because God is probably surrounded by this cloud, we're able to gaze at greater length at this cloud. Um, So for one thing, God is in the cloud. Um, Where is God in relation to the people when this happens? Outside the camp, not within the camp. God doesn't come into the camp itself. You Israelites, you live in your encampment. When I need to talk to to Moses, or when Moses needs to talk to me, I'll come on down to this special tent, which you'll be able to see, but it's not in your midst. God is not in their midst, as we saw earlier in the chapter. God is there, but outside the camp, in the wilderness, at a little bit of a distance from the Israelite camp. So God is there, but not here. Now again, this is very different from our, our conception. God is not nowhere and everywhere. For us, God is invisible, non-physical, non-embodied. Therefore, God is nowhere but everywhere. This is different. God is someplace specific, over there, where we can see what surrounds God, but not here, not in our camp. And where is God usually? Hmm? According to this, just these verses, just these verses, God, God pops in there to speak to Moses, but where is God popping in from? From the heaven, apparently. It says God would come down, Yireh. God used to come down from the heavens to talk to Moses, and then apparently would go back up. Maybe from the top of Sinai, but this is a description of a tent that occurs again later in the Torah, again in Numbers chapters 11 and 12, and finally again in Deuteronomy chapter 31. In fact, we read about it just yesterday in Shul, at which point... Numbers 11, 12, Deuteronomy 31, they're long removed from Sinai. So I think that when it says God used to do this, God would do this frequently, it's including the whole 40 years, at which point they're no longer anywhere near Sinai. So I think that it's God is coming down, probably not from Sinai, but from, from the heavens. This is a description of an ohel mo'ed, a tent of meeting that is very different from the description of the tent of meeting that we're going to get later in the book of Exodus, in chapters 35 through 40, um, and which will then occur again and again in the book of Leviticus. We're getting a totally different picture. That tent that is described later in Exodus and in Leviticus is located inside the camp, inside the machaneh, in the middle of the camp, This one is outside. That tent is a grand structure. It's called a tent. But, you know, it's it's Donald Trump's tent. It's made of wood. It's made of gold and silver. It's got all sorts of fancy stuff. This is a little tent that you just pitch. You can pitch this tent. It's not a big tent. So there's two two different memories in the Torah of the Ohel, of the tent, that are vastly different from each other. This one is from what we Bible scholars call the E-document, the Elohistic document. The other one that you're thinking of, which is much more prominent, is from the P-document, the priestly document. I think that different Israelites had vastly different historical memories 
of what had happened back in the time of the desert. This one is representing God as being usually present in heaven. When, on rare occasion, God would come to the planet Earth, God would come to Earth and talk to Moses outside the camp. Whereas for the, for the P author, God actually left heaven to come and live on the planet Earth in the midst of the Israelite encampment. So two very different historical memories. Um, mm-hmm. So my question was, is this pre-Mishkan? The thing is, it's pre-Mishkan, and it's also at the same time as the Mishkan. The Mishkan, or the priestly memory, or the priestly description of the tent, um, is built a few chapters after this. But then we get both of them described in the books of number, in, in Numbers. So what I think what we're getting here is the, the P document and the E document, which were originally separate books, both talk about a tent that existed during the 40 years in the wilderness, but they have vastly different recollections, historical memories from their ancestors of where that tent was located, what it looked like, and how it functioned. So it, it's not that it's pre or post or simultaneous. It, these are two competing narratives, competing historical narratives describing ancient Israelite history. Um, so as a Bible scholar, I'm not trying to harmonize these. I'm just noting that our ancestors and forebears in ancient Israel, they all remember a tent. But interestingly, they remember that tent in different ways. And the editor of the Torah doesn't force us to choose between them. The editor of the Torah puts both of those historical memories into this book that becomes our holy book. Our holy book is not P and it's not E, but it's the combined J, E, P, and D that has both memories. And somehow we Jews have to accept both memories as, as, as teaching us something important about God that we have to accept, even though there's a tension or even a contradiction between these two memories. But the editor of the Torah doesn't choose. It gives, the editor of the Torah gives us both these memories, and we've got to learn something from both of them without ever finding out exactly how things really were. Does that make any sense, that answer? Okay, we've got plenty of time to talk, not only during these sessions, but at meals, and you know that's part of the, the way this thing is designed. Um, we'll have, there's that time, there's going to be, I think, another time that I'll be available. Uh, I think it'll be, that's today, but I think it'll be good if we add some time tomorrow to the schedule, because then we'll have had more sessions, and I think we'll need more than one of those, so we'll talk further. Yes? How do you account for the, and Moses sees God face to face, whereas from the people's point of view, he could be hidden in the cloud. But face to face implies face to face. Yes. How does that So in, in verse 11 of our chapter, Moses has a status that nobody else has. Moses gets to talk to God face to face, which no other Israelite, not even apparently Joshua, gets to do. And I think that's easy to explain. Moses is at a much higher level than, than everybody else. But he doesn't fear dying. And Moses at this point has apparently been in direct contact enough with God that he no longer fears dying. In Exodus chapter 3, the first time Moses sees God, initially Moses is frightened. But Moses gets confident even during the course of that conversation, so that by the end of that passage in Exodus chapter 4, Moses is beginning to talk back to God, is getting a little uppity. 
Um, and from there on out, up until the day he dies, up until he sees God face to face the last time, and God kisses him to death. But Isaiah and Ezekiel um, still take the day after he died. So Isaiah and Ezekiel in that regard resemble Moses, because Moses initially was afraid in Exodus 3, but I think they never become quite as familiar as Moses. They... they they never get quite as, as confident as Moses does. But anyway, these are prophets. They have abilities that we don't have. The rest of us can't see God in that same way. Um, I'm sorry? So I'll come to that in a second, but let's, let's add this question first on verse 11, then we'll go to that verse. Um, so in verse 11, what we're getting is the idea that Moses is different from the rest of us. You also get that in, in Numbers chapter 12, by the way, very explicitly, where we're told in Numbers chapter 12... Um, let me actually, I'll just quote this out loud. Um, in Numbers chapter 12, which is from the same document, it also describes the same tent, it's very much from the same author. In 12 verse 7 we're told, generally speaking, prophets see God as in a dream or in a mirror. And you've got to stop and remember, what does it mean to say that they see God in a mirror? In the ancient world, mirrors were not like our mirrors. Mirrors were made of highly burnished bronze, and they, they just weren't as high quality as our mirrors. When you looked at yourself in a mirror in the ancient world, in this kind of bumpy, polished, but not polished the way we polish things, because they didn't have the same technology we have, in this sort of bumpy bronze mirror, you see an image that is smaller than you really are, blurry because the, the bronze is a little bumpy and red. So to, in the ancient world to say, I saw it as in a mirror, in our, maybe for us you'd say, you know, I saw it as if though through blurry glass. You're not really seeing, it's not a good image. Um, so others, other prophets were told, see God like in a mirror. They see a smaller, blurrier, redder version. But Moses saw God directly and spoke to God face to face. So part of the explanation is just that Moses is at a higher level than other prophets, much less regular individuals. On the other hand, I think as, I think as Morris is pointing out, you go a little further in this chapter, and what do we read um, that is back in Exodus chapter 33, and we get the verse, Lo yir ani hadam v'chai. Moses, a little later in the chapter, says to God, Har'eni na et kvodecha. Where is that? What verse am I looking at? Um... Uh, 18. In verse 18, O God, show me your kavod, which I would translate as, show me your body. Um, and then a little later, God responds negatively and says in verse 20, You can't see my face. Um, because a human won't see me, a human can't see me and live. A few verses after that, actually when we get to verse, uh, in chapter 34, God passes by Moses um, at the beginning of chapter 34. Um, God says to Moses, okay Moses, you want to see me, this is how much you can see. Stand in this little cleft of the rock, in this little cave, um, and I'll go past you and I'll pronounce my name, and then you'll see my back, but you won't see my front. So God passes by, and God puts God's kapayim, God's kaf, God's hands in front of Moses, so that Moses won't see God's face, 
So we, we learned something, by the way, about, um, about the hand. It must be a gigantic hand if it can cover up this whole cleft in the rock. And then God takes the... the, the um, if Moses is like right here, God passes by kind of like this. So that Moses is briefly able to get a glimpse of God's back as God is going away. But Moses can't see God's front. So this actually contradicts what we saw in verse 11, right? Verse 11, it says that Moses spoke to God, Panim el Panim, face to face. A little later, the same chapter says, no, 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 no. Nobody, not even Moses, not even the greatest prophet in the history of the world gets to see God's face. Yeah, you've heard that he saw God. He saw God's back as God was moving away. That's as much as he was able to see. This is a blatant contradiction within this chapter. And I think the reason is this chapter is giving us a variety of traditions concerning God's presence, God's body, and the extent to which we can see God's body. And these traditions differ from each other because different Israelites, different Judeans, different biblical authors had different theological ideas. And this, this chapter doesn't come to give us the answer to the question, can anybody see God? What it's coming to do, and this is very often the case in the Bible, it is coming to give us a variety of opinions on this important issue. It's coming to allow us to begin a conversation, a debate about this important issue. It's coming to give us parameters for asking the questions and having the conversation. It's not coming to give us the answers. This is something that I think is very often the case in the Tanakh. It doesn't come to give us the answers. It comes to give us parameters of the conversation. There are some answers that are completely unacceptable and outside the parameters. There's only one God that matters. You can't be a polytheist. There is one God that matters. You can't be an atheist. There are certain, the parameters are theologically fairly narrow. Polytheism and atheism are completely outside the bounds. You've got to believe in God maximum one, minimum one. But within that, then there are parameters within which they don't give us an answer. They give us a guide to the conversation. So this chapter tells us Moses did see God face to face again and again. Again, the verb form used in verses 7 through 11 is frequentative. It describes an activity that happens again and again. Later in the same chapter, it says, no, no one can see God, period. Then it says, well, Moses did see God's back, but not God's front. There's a, a wide variety of possible answers that were being given here. We won't even go into all of it. There's even some other interesting terminology that's used here for God's presence, including some that you hear, but we're already seven minutes over, so we're not going to go into that. For all the debate that this chapter gives us, for all the different sorts of opinions that we saw in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and even more different opinions in Amos chapter 9, verse 1, what never is under debate in any of these passages is the possibility that there's no divine body to be seen. All of the questioning involves what happens if a human sees the divine body? Under what conditions can a human see the divine body? Can a human see all or only part of the divine body? Is the divine body on the planet Earth? Or is it located normally in heaven? When it is on earth, does it pop in briefly or does it stay for a while? There's all sorts of other questions being asked. 
But what we all learned in Hebrew school, that's never an option here. The notion that God is simply invisible, that God is nowhere yet everywhere, that kind of Maimonidean, medieval, modern notion of God, that's not here. And at this point, we've gotten to about where we're ready to begin um, our discussion. We, we haven't actually started yet. The class <laughs> sessions haven't even begun. They're going to begin in a couple hours. We're now ready to begin our conversation because I hope to have demonstrated that, surprise, surprise, the God of the Bible has a body. And what the, the Bible wants us to debate about is what sort of body it is, and we'll see soon how many bodies there are. But the, but the, the bedrock assumption of everything we'll be doing is that what they taught us in Hebrew school, historically speaking, was not the case. Thank you very much. I turn it over again. Kostaraba. Thank you. Great. So we still, uh, before we start this lecture, we were still finishing this, the schmooze section. We had gotten about this far in our clockwise movement, and there were some hands that were still up. So let's just, for a few minutes, catch these last questions, then move on to the next lecture. Uh, Morris, right? Right. In the readings uh, that you gave us, uh, you had fire as one of the elements of the I think of fire as a symbol Knowledge, you know, approaching knowledge, it's something you can't, you can aspire to. We all aspire to be gods. Great. We can't touch knowledge. If you do, it works. Um, yeah, but, it, mm -hmm. but that brings me to the next question. We ate in the Garden of Eden from the tree of knowledge. Yeah. Have we eaten from the other tree, no. We have the eternal and like God. So, what what exactly is that? I don't want to get too far off on that because I, I think that raises a whole different uh, set of questions. But so, let me just answer very briefly. I think that the I think the idea there in in Genesis chapter three is. We've got access to one or the other tree, but not both. And having taken from the tree of knowledge, we now lo lose access to the tree of life. In other words, as humans, we're like God, but only to some extent. Initially, we were Im immortal, but not knowledgeable, not capable of moral choice. Having become capable of moral choice, we now had to lose access to the tree of life. Um, and we become limited in, in lifespan. I think that's the idea there. That's a whole different topic, so I don't want to get too, too much over on, on, on to Genesis 2 and 3. So next person as we move clockwise. Your statement uh, about the uh, Moloch, does that have anything to do with Moloch? No, it sounds a little similar, but etymologically and in terms of meaning, they're completely unrelated words. Um, not, not related at all. Uh, good question, but no. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of this session, you said God has many bodies. And then later you said Ezekiel referred to Elohim. Is that Elohim referring to God's many bodies? And the reason I ask that is that a Christian friends of mine said that the idea of the Trinity comes from the Jews. I'm going to... Um, so you do have two questions. Real quickly, Ezekiel... Well, three things. 
The word Elohim in Hebrew is a plural noun, but it is often used, I mean, often in the sense of hundreds and hundreds of times, used of the one God. That is, it's what, what grammarians call a plural of majesty. Now, some, so Elohim, usually in the Bible, just is translated correctly as God with a capital G. It's called the plural of majesty. On the other hand, there are cases in the Bible where Elohim refers to, refers to God's plural, small g. That is, lower-ranking heavenly beings who are subservient to God with a capital G. And usually context makes it very clear to which we're talking about. There are a few cases where we can debate which word is intended. In the case of Ezekiel, I don't think that he's referring to God's many bodies for reasons that we'll see in the third lecture. Um, the Trinity, I'm going to hold off on that. Let's come back. We'll come back to the Trinity in the fourth lecture. Um, moving along. Mm-hmm. You spoke here a lot about the bodily aspect of God. To me, it does not seem strange at all because we have to remember the Israelites were living in the surrounding of people and worship idols. And idols are the real thing. Now, in addition, the ancient people, they were more concrete in their thinking. And they did not have the abstraction that was achieved by the Greek. Now comes the question, why would Spinoza expel Because he said it's possible that God has uh, bodily aspects. One of the things they accused him, Spinoza. Why? So I think both points you made are excellent points, and we'll, we'll really come back to both of them. In, if, so the, the idea um, that, I'm sorry, I forgot your name? Jacob, Jacob. That Jacob um, uh, expressed was that when you stop and think about it, it isn't so surprising that the Bible, that ancient Israelite literature, refers to God having a body, because, for one thing, in the area... In the ancient Near East, the ancestors and the neighbors of the Israelites in all directions prayed to idols. Divinity was something that needed to be concretized. And so it's not so surprising that Israelites um, would think concretely about, um, about God. And ancients tended to think in very concrete terms up until the Greeks really refined the sort of abstract thinking, the philosophical thinking that for us as Western individuals is just second nature. It's taken 2,500 years, but it's second nature to us. Um, I think those are both great points. Um, the last question, I don't want to spend too much time on about Spinoza. Yeah. Uh, Spinoza had a notion of, of God as embodied in, in his own way. Uh, Spinoza had that. that, that. That's one of the, the points that the, the Beit Din in Amsterdam held against him when they excommunicated him. Um, and so why, given what I'm saying, why should that have been a big deal? Well, of course, that baked in was thoroughly, thoroughly Maimonidean. By that time, Maimonides had won. And so saying something like this um, was radical. Saying what Spinoza said was radical from the point of view of a Jewish community that really venerated Maimonides. Um, and then in addition to that, Spinoza had, there, there are a lot of other things on the charge sheet. Um, <laughs> Spinoza really actually was a heretic. I myself am not in favor of getting Bate Din together to expel people, but actually the, the Beit Din had the facts on their side. I mean, Spinoza was not a Jewish thinker. 
Yeah. Well, an atheist, or he, he was his own kind of deist, but but anyway, this isn't the cut on Spinoza. Uh, so I'm going to move along. Mm-hmm. So to what extent you uh, say this idea, my mind is really wanted to have this idea of God not having a body. To what extent did Christianity, Trinity, influence Maimonides to go against this type of thing? I'm not sure that... The question is, to what extent did the Christian idea of the Trinity influence Maimonides' move away from the notion of divine embodiment? I don't think... And again, I'm not a Maimonides scholar... Um, so I, I'm really, as they say, I'm slumming here. Um, but I don't think that Christianity played a gigantic role in, in Maimonides thinking that reacting to Christianity wasn't the biggest thing on his mind, though it probably played some roles. I mean, he knew about Christianity, but he spent his entire, entire life living in the Muslim world. His intellectual partners outside Judaism were Muslim philosophers. Um, even to the extent that he was deeply influenced by Greek philosophy and admired Greek philosophy, um, he knew all the Greek philosophy through the Arab world. He didn't know Greek. He read his Aristotelianism in Arabic. So I, I don't think Christianity was necessarily that huge on in, in his mind. I think rather, while that may have played some role, I think that the main impetus was his commitment to certain Greek ideals of abstract thinking um, and to a certain dualism uh, to get back to a question that had been answered, asked earlier to the, the thoroughly dualistic view that he had um, uh, of the nature of humanity and divinity. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Anita. I'm a and I Uh, I speak from a reform kind of background, and uh, the way I would talk to God tells me God is actually through the ages. I was interested since we're welcoming God uh, that you know open up your gates, God of righteousness, and uh, <clears throat> come in and Abraham's welcoming strangers. Always, you always think of his tent, always welcoming. And uh, when you say God was outside the tent, I mean, Abraham would certainly have gone through the tent. <laughs> so I was thinking that uh, God is speaking, in, uh, and we're speaking to God in many different moods as a psychologist. I'm particularly interested in uh, uh, God. God becomes angry. He is retaliatory. But in reform, we always learn that uh, we do not punish, and that God is a forgiving God. And that's what peace and the code is all about. So, how do you put those two ideas together that we're welcoming and that we're we seeing God as a, a very uh, punitive uh, being in whatever we want? The question of God as a punitive God and as a forgiving God is one of the major tensions in the Hebrew Bible and a very productive tension. Tremendous topic. I don't think offhand it's directly related to what I'm dealing with here, which is the notion of divine embodiment. 
Um, so I think I'm just going to punt on that one. That's a, another topic to talk about, but that would be a whole different that would be a whole different set of uh, of classes. Um, so I'm going to see going to see if there's any other questions over here. Yes. Um, I've been wondering what it is that has changed to convince me that uh, the writers of the Bible saw God as having at least one body. Uh, but it's clear also that we don't believe that. And something has changed. And, uh, Jacob mentioned something earlier about the concreteness of our, of our ancestors. I was also wondering, uh, anyone who understands and observes the uh, thinking of children knows that youngsters are very concrete. And when they become adolescents, they're, they're thinking becomes more abstract and their ability I think part of it is that we Jews are introduced to and gain a lot from the abstract thinking of the um, of the Greeks. So I think that, that that's one of the things that changes. Um, and the as is often the case in Jewish culture, there's, there is much to be learned from our environment. Um, it's not that we've got all the right ways and the best ways of thinking about things. One of the, the, the great changes in Jewish culture it occurs as early medieval Jewish philosophers begin to synthesize Greek philosophy, especially Aristotelian philosophy, with, uh, with Jewish thinking. I, I think that that's really what changes that Judaism begins to become westernized uh, in the early Middle Ages. Um, okay, I think we're at, at 7.30 about, so we should move on a little bit after 7.30. We should move on to our next lecture, um, which, which we'll, re we'll really start talking about this notion of not just God's bodies, but God's many bodies. Now, to talk about this, what I uh, actually two things I'd like to do. One, let me just ask: Should this now be on this thing here? It's been on. It's been on. Okay, gotcha. Since we're about to start that this second lecture, um, we're going to um, we're going to be using the handout a bit. So some of you may have it already, but just in case some of you didn't bring it with you, let's let me pass these around. Here you go. Uh, either take one or pass it along. For the beginning of this session, we're going to leave the Bible and we're going to leave ancient Israel for a while because for us to get a sense of this very strange ancient Israelite theology that I want to discuss during tonight's session, we'll need, first of all, to put the Bible in its own cultural context. And the cultural context of ancient Israel is the ancient Near East. The ancestors of the Israelites and the neighbors of the Israelites were the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, um, perhaps to some smaller degree the Egyptians. And to understand how biblical Israelites thought to enter their mind, to enter their thought world. We've got to recover some ancient Near Eastern ways of thinking about divinity uh, that won't be obvious to us modern Western people. So I want to spend some time just talking about first Mesopotamian, which is to say Babylonian and Assyrian notions of divinity, 
and then some Canaanite and Aramean notions of divinity. Um, because something that I began to sense um, in my own studies of Mesopotamian literature especially, Babylonian literature especially, was that there's a whole different conception of a type of being, a type of existence that the Mesopotamians had when they thought about their gods. There's a fundamental difference between divinity and humanity in Mesopotamian thinking. And I think that that fundamental difference is often assumed by ancient Israelite writers. So to understand certain parts of the Bible, we need to go over to Babylon. So let's take this handout. And in Roman numeral one and following, let's, let's go and look at, actually these are Assyrian texts, um, some, some Assyrian texts that tell us something about how human beings and divine beings differed from each other. I think that there are two ways in particular that humans and divine beings differed from each other qualitatively, not just quantitatively in terms of, well, they're bigger than us and they're stronger and they can do magic better than we can. That's one difference between the gods and humans. But that's really a quantitative difference. We're similar, but they're just bigger and better than we are. But there's also a qualitative difference um, I've suggested in, uh, in some of my research. And that qualitative difference comes down to two main differences that are close to, closely related. First of all, a divinity can fragment into smaller scale divinities that retain some aspect of the God from whom they are derived and yet have a little bit of independence as well. So that, in other words, a divinity has a certain fluidity of self, whereas myself is just myself. This is me, and you're you, and that's the end of the story. With a god, that's not necessarily the case. A god can kind of fragment so that myself might be more than oneself who are all related to each other, but have a little bit of independence. That's one kind of um, fluidity that the gods have that we don't have. And that will mean in part that a god can have more than one body. Second, a god's self can overlap temporarily with the self of another god. So whereas I'm Ben and Morris is Morris, and we can shake hands, as we were demonstrating, we practiced this for like half an hour. Uh, it went really well. Um, but we don't come, become the same person. Well, the god Enki and the god Marduk, they're separate beings with their own personalities and their own bodies, and yet they can also mingle for a little while, merge, and then unmingle, unmerge, and become separate again. So there's a fluidity of self that the gods have that we don't have. Let's look at an example, first of all, of, of that fragmentation. Something that happens often in ancient Near Eastern literature is that you find that there are many different gods who have the same name, but they have different, different geographic locations or some other modifier to their name. And at some level, they are the same deity, and yet at some level, they're not. So, for example, in Roman numeral one on the handout. Um, we've got here a, a, just a couple of lines out of a long treaty 
um, that was signed between the Assyrian Emperor um, Esarhaddon um, and King Ramataya of a place called Urakazabanu, who was a, a local petty king. And when these treaties between ancient Near Eastern kings were signed, the witnesses to the treaty, to this, little, to this legal document, were typically the gods of the two peoples. So you get lists of the gods in these treaties, um, and in the list of the Assyrian gods, we find references to Ishtar, the goddess Ishtar of the city of Arbela, but also another goddess named Ishtar of the city of Nineveh. Plus, there's also a reference to the planet, planet Venus, um, who is generally speaking equated with heavenly Ishtar. So there's three different goddesses named Ishtar listed separately in this treaty. Later in the text, um, they're, they're mentioned again along with an Ishtar of Carchemish. The same thing happens in Roman numeral two, um, a treaty between the Assyrian emperor Ashur Nirari and Mat-i-ilu of a city of, of a country, a city called Arpad. Um, here we find references to the gods Adad and Shala, to Ishtar, the lady of Nineveh, Ishtar, the lady of Arbela, to another god, Adad of Kurbail, and Adad of Aleppo. And then the text is cut there, but it's probably Aleppo. Adad of Aleppo. So we've got two different Ishtars and three different Adads. Adad being generally another name for the god whom the Canaanites called Baal. Um, so you've got these gods with the same name, and in ancient Near Eastern thinking, a name, a shame uh, in Hebrew, a shumma in Akkadian, a name wasn't just a, a sound that represents something. A name was thought to be the essence of something. So for two deities to have the same name might be a way of saying that at their core, their very essence, they're the same goddess. But they're different goddesses because they're listed separately. Um, you get a sense of this even more so in Roman numeral three, which is a poem, a prayer, um, which the, the Assyrian emperor Ashurbanipal prayed to the goddesses Ishtar of Nineveh and Ishtar of Arbela. In this, he says the following, Exalt, he prays, exalt and glorify the lady of Nineveh, magnify and praise the lady of Arbela, who have no equal among the great gods. Now you might have thought maybe Lady of Nineveh, Lady of Arbella are just two terms for the same goddess, but the next line clearly uses the plural form, they have, not she has, but in the Akkadian it's very clearly, they have no equal among the great, god, uh, the, the great gods. Their names, um, the, the, the suffix here for there is shima, it's clearly a plural suffix and not she, which would be a, a, a singular suffix. Their names are most precious among the goddesses. Their cult centers have no equal among all the shrines. A word from their lips is blazing fire. Their utterances are valid forever. I am Ashurbanipal, their favorite. I grew up in the lap of my goddesses. The Lady of Nineveh, the mother who bore me, endowed me with unparalleled kingship. The Lady of Arbella, my creator, ordered everlasting life for me. They decreed, the form here is a feminine plural form, Ishima. They decreed as my fate to exercise dominion over all the inhabited regions. They caused 
kings to bow down at my feet. Now, these are clearly two different beings. The grammatical forms used are plural, or sometimes dual grammatical forms. And yet, they do the same thing. They act completely in concert. They act in parallel. They act as one. Um, In this poem, they're grammatically separate, but at their essence and at the level of their actions, they're not separate at all. Furthermore, when we go from the poem or from these legal treaties to the realm of mythology, there's only one Ishtar. There's no myth about Ishtar of Arbella, who one day you know, goes and visits her cousin Ishtar of Nineveh. There's just Ishtar. There's only one Ishtar. Um, similarly, uh, in Canaanite texts, which I haven't given you on, on the handout, we have lists of many, many different Baals, but there's only one Baal in mythology. You don't have stories about different Baals who, who interact with each other. So that at some level, all these different gods, they are, but they are not the same. Why? Because a god is different from a human. A god can fragment into lots of local manifestations who, whom you can pray to separately, and yet deep down, they're all really the same. Um, you get some sense of this, um, this fragmentation and overlap also in another text, which is Roman numeral four, where we're told that various deities, various gods, are aspects of, more, more literally, are body parts of the god Ninurta. So that in this prayer to Ninurta, one says, O Lord, your face is Shamash, who is the sun god. Your locks are Nisaba. Your eyes, O Lord, are Enlil, the god of the storm and the wind, and his wife, Ninlil. Your eyeballs are Gulat and Belat Ili. Your eyelids, O Lord, are the two twins, Sin, the god of the moon, and Shamash, the god of the sun. So all these different deities, they have their own independent existence, and yet at some level, they're perceived to be parts of the god Ninurta. There are other texts like this that do the same thing with other deities, Various deities that are all parts of the god Marduk, for example. Um, so that various gods apparently to some degree merge with each other to form another god. In, um, in Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation epic, the main character is Marduk, the god Marduk, whose father's name is also an important character. He is Ea. They're different gods. But at one point in the epic, Ea and Marduk seem to merge with each other. They seem to become the same deity for a little while, but over the long term, they're different deities. Furthermore, Marduk is called by the name of the god Enlil, and the name of the god Ea, and the name of the god Anu, so that a name for Marduk is is Enlil Ea Anu three different gods who somehow seem to combine with Marduk. And yet they remain separate gods. They have their own mythology, their stories about each one individually, they have their own temples, they have their own statues, they have their own rituals. Deities can merge, they can overlap with each other, they can fragment. So there's some extent to which there's this fluidity in the realm of the deities that just doesn't exist among us humans. Um, Question? I'm sorry? How much of this was political? Some of it may have been political, but I think it wasn't just political. There's other ways of describing one god's or one city's union 
with another city or one city's um, conquest of another city. If it, if it was just political, I think that there are simpler solutions. Uh, in any event, even if this solution is in large part political, the fact is that this is the model that they're using to, to if, if they are using this model to express an, a, a political idea, the model is still there. This is the model they chose for it. It's the, a model that explains some sort of, flu, that assumes some sort of fluidity in the selfhood of these gods. Um, there's another way in which we see these gods as being somewhat overlapping, um, which is in some ritual texts, we get stunningly boring ritual texts that just list um, what sacrifices have to be offered to a particular god on a certain holiday. Um, and in some of these lists, you get, you know, you give two bulls to Enlil, two bulls to Anu, two bulls to Ashur, but then you also get and two bulls to Anu Ashur, and two bulls to Enlil Ashur, and two bulls to Marduk Ashur, so that Marduk and Anu and Enlil, they're all listed on their own as their own deity, but then they seem to merge for a while, and you give other sacrifices to the merged deity. So Anu is an individual, Marduk is an individual, but they're also mingling in their identity to, for, for part of the ritual. This is the, 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 what I would call the fluidity of divine selfhood. Mm -hmm. The these texts are from a wide variety of time periods, going back to the second millennium and in the first millennium, but the majority of the texts that I'm looking at tend to be um, early first millennium, from Mesopotamia in the early first millennium. That is... Uh, uh, no, 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 uh, uh, BCE. Okay. I'm a Bible scholar. If I mention a date, it means BCE. That's the default value. Um, it, all dates are lower than zero. Um, if it's over zero, it's not scholarship, it's journalism. Um, so the, uh, I'm sorry? These are contemporaneous, say, with the split Some are contemporaneous, but a lot of the texts that I'm citing are from a bit before the time. of. So some of these, some of these texts are pre-Israelite texts, um, some of the ones that I'm looking at. And some of them are contemporaneous. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I don't, because Eloheinu isn't a name. Eloheinu is a job title. Um, the word Hashem, spelled with the letters Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey, that's a personal name. But El or Elohim, that's a job title like lawyer or doctor or policeman. Um, so that that wouldn't be an example of what I'm talking about. That's Hashem Eloheinu is God's name followed by God's job title. I'm sorry. Master. Yeah. I have no idea. It's a great question. Why in the book of Esther we get two main Jewish characters who both have the names of pagan deities, Marduk and Esther, Marduk and Ishtar, is a great question, the answer to which I, I, I don't know and neither does anyone else to my knowledge. It's, it, it's, it, it is fascinating, but we don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is Howard's question phrased differently. Uh, so I apologize, but since we have several sources, the JPP and D sources that we have kept, is it possible that the same thing happened with, you know, Enlil and whoever and so forth, that they somehow, there were some that had one and some of the other that could be together? No, I don't think so, because Enlil remains Enlil. 
Marduk remains Marduk, even though it is simply in the nature of their being that they can also mingle, overlap temporarily, or fragment that there are local Marduks. Actually, we don't have local Marduks, but there are local Ishtars and local Adads. One other aspect of this multiplicity of the gods has to do with their bodies. And for this, we're going to have to pause for a minute and learn a little bit about the statues or icons or idols of the ancient Mesopotamian deities. Um, when you built an idol, when you constructed an idol in ancient Mesopotamia, you didn't just physically construct it. That wasn't enough to make it an idol. When, you, when the artisan, the goldsmith or the silversmith or the carpenter has done his work, once they finish their work, it's not yet an idol. To become an idol or an icon, or the, the Mesopotamian word happens to be tsalmu, tsalmu, which is related to the Hebrew term selim, actually. To become a tsalmu, you had to take this object and perform a certain ritual on it. The ritual was known as the pit pee ceremony, which means the mouth opening ceremony, or the miss pee ceremony, which means the mouth washing ceremony. Pit pee, by the way, pit is like the word patach in Hebrew, and pee is like pet in Hebrew. Um, these, these are Arcadian or Babylonian Assyrian words, which are cognate to Hebrew terms. In, the con in, the, in this ceremony, um, the priests were able to bring the presence of the god literally into the object, so that the object was no longer simply a thing, but it had become, in fact, the god's body. And you get a very clear sense of this. It's very explicit in a lot of these pit P uh, texts. For example, um, one of the pit P texts that describes this ritual says the following. This is Roman numeral five. The priest who's performing the ceremony is directed as follows. Into the ears of that god, you speak as follows. The, the word god here is referring to the statue. So into the ear, and the statue, the Mesopotamian statues, they were made with eyes and ears and a nose and a mouth and so forth. These were all parts that the, the artisans, the goldsmith or the carpenter would have put onto the statue. So into the ears of that god, i.e. that statue, you speak as follows. You are counted among your brother gods. You whisper into his right ear. From today, your destiny may be counted as divinity. With your brother gods, you are counted. Another text says... On the day when the god, that is the statue, was created and the pure statue was completed, the god was made visible in all the land. He is clothed in splendor, suited to lordliness. Lordly, he is full of pride, surrounded with radiance. He is endowed with awesome radiance. He shines out splendidly. The statue appears brilliantly. In other words, he was very bright. Um, this brightness that they describe as surrounding the statue is the brightness that surrounds a Mesopotamian deity in, in all sorts of Mesopotamian literature. I'll give you just a couple of examples of similar descriptions, let's say, of the god Asaluchi, which is another name for Marduk. Um, but we could find similar descriptions for, for dozens and dozens of other gods. So the imagery, the poetic imagery that normally applies to a god is applied to the god statue because once the mouth of the statue has been opened and cleaned. Once this pit pee, miss pee ceremony has taken place, the statue is no longer a statue. It is now a god. 
Um, there's actually one Mesopotamian text I didn't put onto the, um, onto the handout that actually says, until the pit peace ceremony is performed, the God cannot smell the offerings, cannot hear the prayers. Now, some of you know from the book of Psalms, in Hallel, for example, in Psalm 115 or 116, you get the exact same language, except it's negative. The psalmist insists, they're idols, they can't hear, they can't see, they can't talk. But in fact, the Mesopotamians believed that they could. That the eyes, the jewelry, that the two jewels that were put to be the eyes of the statue, and the ear that was carved out of the wood, that once you did the pit piece ceremony, it wasn't just a jewel. It was really an eye that could see. It wasn't just a representation of an ear by a sculptor. It was actually an ear that could hear. And so the god was present in the statue. They thought this really quite literally. Statues were gods. They also, from the way they wrote the word statue, it was clear that they thought a statue of a god had become a god. It was a certain way of spelling any divine name that they used for these statues. But what's interesting to me in particular, there's a lot of other scholars who have pointed this out about the pit peace ceremony. This is my own research. What is interesting to me that I, that, that I point out um, in my book is we need to pause to remember that there's more than one statue of Marduk. Yes, once you've made a statue of Marduk and you've performed the pit pee ceremony, it's the body of Marduk. But there's lots of statues of Marduk all over Mesopotamia. In Marduk's temple, there's a big statue of Marduk, but you know what? Across the street from Marduk's temple is the temple of Marduk's son, Nabu. And in the temple of Nabu, there is a, a special shrine for Marduk that has a Marduk statue. So right across the street from each other in Babylon, there are two bodies of Marduk. And that's just in Babylon. Travel a few miles outside of Babylon, you'll get to another town that has a smaller, less grand temple for Marduk, and there you'll find yet another body of Marduk. And over Mesopotamia, you'll find dozens of bodies of Marduk. Um, what's interesting is not just that the that Salmu, the statue, was literally the presence of the god, but that the god was present in many different places. The body of the god was present in many different places, or to put it differently, Marduk had many bodies. Ishtar had many bodies. This makes sense when you stop, about, stop to think about how there's an Ishtar of Nineveh, an Ishtar of Arbella. Um, well, yes, literally, in the city of Nineveh, there was a main Ishtar statue. But in Nineveh, there was an Ishtar statue, too. So that you get multiple bodies of any given deity. Well, this fits the fluidity model that I've been describing. A, a god is not limited. In, in terms of space and time. A god can be in many different places, in many different specific places. So there's just, there's just this difference between humanity and divinity in the way that Babylonians and Assyrians think that they can be in many places at once and we cannot. This isn't just a, quali a quantitative difference. It's not just that they're more powerful and smarter than we are. It's a qualitative difference. The nature of their being is fundamentally different than the nature of our being because they can fragment, they can be fluid, and yet remain a, a single being. Marduk, in the end, is still just Marduk. There's only one mythology of Marduk. The stories of Marduk are all about the same Marduk. Um, 
I'll pause here before we, we leave Mesopotamia just to take a few questions, and then we're going to travel over to Canaan. Uh, over here? How is this the same or different um, in modern Christianity? Yes. You have the instant of prop, for example. Yes. Christ child figure, which ladies like to dress up. Uh, Mary. And Mary. Mary. Even more so in Catholicism, you have Marian um, pieties. Mary of Fatima, Mary of Guadalupe, Mary of um, the famous Black Mary in Poland. Who is that? Krakow. Krakow, is it? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's the exact same idea in Catholicism. Or maybe even to put it differently, as Catholicism moved into new areas historically, local female deities were combined with Mary very easily because you could have a deity in more than one place anyway. So no, I, I think it's very, very similar uh, to the phenomenon that we find in Catholicism, especially with Mary. Maybe also to some degree, well, and also to some degree with Jesus, but I'm going to hold off until my fourth lecture. I'm going to come back to this in my fourth lecture. I think there's in a sense in which we see this not only with the infant Jesus, but with the adult Jesus as well. But we'll, we'll come back to that. But, but in, in, to give a one-word answer, yes, you're right. Or you said, how is this different or the same? It's the same. Or very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Seems like in these cases, uh, any village person that called himself a priest could endow a piece of hardware with God-like property. Well, so there's no end to it. There's no end to it. Uh, but I wouldn't just say any old person who calls himself a priest. Priests were people who had very specialized training. It's not any old person can't just call themselves a priest. A priest of Marduk. Um, to be a priest of Marduk, you had to have a lot of specialized training. You probably needed to know how to read, which was an extraordinarily rare skill, especially in Mesopotamia, where reading was really hard because, let's say, standard Neo-Assyrian has 495 signs, each of which can have not only three or four different meanings, or even as many as five, six, seven meanings, but three different types of meaning. So it, it was a highly specialized profession in ancient Mesopotamia. There was a, a tremendous amount of tradition and lore and legal texts, ritual texts that you had to master. So you're right. There could be lots of proliferations of bodies of Marduk. On the other hand, it wasn't just like any old guy could hang out a priest, uh, hang out a sign and say, "Hey, I'm a priest of Marduk." Um, it, it was a specialized uh, profession that was hard to hard to break into probably for the most part an inherited office um, I don't think that you could just decide you were going to be a priest of Marduk uh, certainly we know in Israel and in Egypt and probably in Ugarit priesthood was was inherited I'm not positive always about Mesopotamia but anyway the priesthood in Mesopotamia was a very specialized field and these are very complicated texts um, the, the ritual took several days and they didn't hmm, and a god didn't always automatically eternally agree to be inside of a statue. There were indications, they believed, that the god had become angry and left the statue. For example, if the Gutians invaded and destroyed the temple and, and brought your people off into slavery, that was probably a good sign that the god had left the statue. Um, very often, they would use these texts not only for a brand new statue. Some of our best evidence is that they would use is from cases where they use these texts 
to bring the god back into a statue that had been rescued from foreign invaders. Um, but from the fact that the statue had been captured, they realized that the god had become angry and had left. Um, question over here? I don't know about the comment. This was also true of natural events. One developed a relationship with the or was the relationship with, with the god if there was a natural event such as a drought. God was angry and You could also deduce, right, you could deduce that the God obviously is angry at us because there's been an earthquake or because of a drought, and that may be an indicator that he's no longer living in our temple. And then, therefore, you might want to perform this this ritual, this liturgy again on that object. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, King uh, Rama Taya and Absur uh, seem to be very Sanskritic or, or Pali words. Uh, uh, have you made a connection at all between the two? And um, is there any special significance if it is true that one is a secular uh, Sanskrit and the other is a more religious Pali? I'm not sure. Um, Ashurbanipal is actually a pure Semitic word. It's, it means Ashur Bani, um, Ashur Bani Pal, the god Ashur has has created um, has created, I believe, a son. Although I'd want to double check on Pal, um, but that, that's pure that's pure Akkadian. That's that, that's a, But I agree with you. I'm not a Sanskritist, but Ramataya has an Indian feeling to it. And there were Indo-Europeans in Mesopotamia, um, and certainly immediately east of Mesopotamia in Persia. Uh, in Persian is, is related to Sanskrit. Um, so it, it is possible that, um, not that this is Sanskrit, but this may be an Indo-European name from a language somewhat closely related to Sanskrit. That's, that is definitely possible. Offhand, I don't know, but it sounds that way to me too. Ashurbanipal, that's pure Akkadian. Mm -hmm. uh, it strikes me that Leverite marriage is a way in which uh, humans have a fluidity of self. There is there's some degree to which you see that, yes, that maybe not fluidity, but but the suggestion is that Leverite marriage is related to this complex of ideas because the point of a Leverite marriage, that is, when a man dies a married man dies without having had a son. Um, his widow should marry his brother, and the child of that union will be the child of the first husband um, who has died. Um, which implies something, that there's something of this individual that endures. Um, I think in that case it is more a symbolic and legal idea. It may also be, and this gets a little off track, it may also be though that it is the, actually it's interesting to talk about this, Dafka, as it's gotten dark out and it's my father's yard site, um, there is a sense that sons have the responsibility of caring for what lingers, what endures from their father. I think ancient Israelites, this would be a whole different topic and if you want to have a weekend on this topic, the person to hire would be John Levinson, actually, from Harvard. But Israelites actually did believe in life after death much more than we've all been taught. We've all been taught the Bible doesn't believe in life after death, but really it actually it does. It just doesn't want to talk about it a whole lot. But there is some sense that 
a part of us does endure after death and it gets hungry and thirsty and it's the responsibility of a son to care for for the father um, which you can do in any of a number of ways and I think the um, one of which is pouring wine or oil or water into the grave probably on the anniversary of the death I think that our custom of the, the yard site actually derives from this ancient Israelite custom which is actually an ancient Near Eastern custom all over the ancient Near East not just in ancient Israel although it plays itself out a little bit differently in Israel um, so if you die without a son who's going to take care of you that's why your wife should marry your brother and then they'll have a son biologically who's really your we know it's the brother's son but that's pretty closely related and legally that will be your son he will inherit your land so your plot of land um, doesn't go to your brothers it'll go to your son your your son who's really your nephew and that son will now have the responsibility of um, of keeping your name alive keeping your memory alive keeping your um, and, and keeping you hydrated and fed um, so I, I think that ultimately the, it, it turns out that what you're suggesting is not a matter of fluidity but is a slightly different sort of issue mm -hmm. I was wondering how um, fluidity is no, by and large, with the exception of the word Elohim, it's always quite clear what's singular and what's plural. Um, and I think that it's also clear in these other languages that that's how we know that they're not exactly the same in those, in those Mesopotamian texts, especially in number three, Roman numeral three. Um, grammatically, they are separate. And yet, I'm sorry? Yes, yeah. I mean, yeah, grammatical number is quite clear in, in by and large, in, in these ancient languages. A one noun or a verb here or there notwithstanding. Yeah, I, I think we can't count on that. Um, mm -hmm. What makes these objects godlike? We have objects today that uh, talk, we have objects that listen, that see, so Well, they, they didn't have any of those things. What makes it godlike is the fact that you perform a very specific magical, magical ritual on it that brings the presence of the god into the object. What makes the god... I'm sorry? We've done that magic on our phone. No, no we haven't. This is magic. We don't do magic on phones. We have engineers. What I'm asking is what quality was put into this object that made it different from cell phone? Cell phone isn't a god. They believe that these objects became gods. Um, the pit pee ceremony. The correct magical ceremony, which if carried out to the letter, you say the right words, you do the right actions, that will actually induce the god to enter the object. Now, the god remains a free agent. The god can leave the object if the god gets angry. But if you do this right, you can get the god to agree to come into the object. It didn't give you law, but it, it could protect you. It could listen to your prayers. It was more accessible to you than the god who's way up there, up in heaven. Um, mm -hmm. Did households have... Um uh, the gods that had been uh, viewed 
and the Great question. We know that there were household gods, who would usually be much lower-ranking gods, um, not these important gods like Marduk or something. But what? That's a great question. I don't know. Was the pit pee performed on a local on your on your little household god? Um, I don't know for sure. If you're really curious, you can email me. I know where I would look it up. I mean, there's two or three scholars who would really, especially a guy named um, Vandertorn at Leiden, whom I would maybe just email him. He's the guy who would know. He wrote the book on the household gods of Mesopotamia. Um, I don't know. If I had to guess, my guess is that a household god, you, that if you've got your own household god, you probably would hire a priest to do a little pit piece ceremony on it and the poorer you are, the less you'd be paying, the more you'd be getting a less impressive piece, uh, priest. If you're a person of considerable means, maybe you could pay for an actual Marduk priest from the Esagila temple to come to do this, from the Marduk temple uh, to come do it for you. But 